Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. If you are using the Bibles there in the chairs, we're on page 791. Continuing looking at this chapter on a brief series on the power of the gospel and the stewardship that we have of handling the truth. Heard the statement, we live our lives in two parts. That was the introductory comment that I heard made by Dr. Kevin Bowder, professor at Central Baptist Theological Seminary, son of Pastor Tom Bowder. And as I heard that, my mind started going a number of directions as to where he may be going with that comment. I thought as a seminary professor, there may be the possibility that he was going to differentiate between the, the training in seminary and then ministry, or of school and work, of preparation and service, or, or possibly some chronological division of our existence. In, in thinking of a Tri-City Christian Academy emphasis today, I thought it, it's easy to think of training young people and then anticipating commencement. Commencement ceremonies, we spotlight the completion of the academic year, and yet the word itself means it, it speaks of a start, a beginning. You know, the heart of what we strive to do at TCA and at Tri-City Baptist Church is, is to prepare people for life how to live in a world and, and prepare for the world to come. Our mission statement at TCA is to assist parents in cultivating Christ-like young people. The theme this year is create in me a, a clean heart, a steadfast spirit, a, a heart of praise, a Christ-like life. And that really ought to be the desire for all of us. But this is also what we seek to do at Tri-City Baptist Church as we evangelize the law so that we can together edify believers that as a group, as a family, we will exalt the triune God, that we will display Christ-likeness. That's really our reasonable service. But that's not where Dr. Bowder went. He said this, we live our lives in two parts. And then he continued, the first part of our life takes us to our bodily death. This part of life is measured in decades. Then comes our physical death, and the rest of our life begins. The rest of our life lasts a very long time. Now, we often don't think about the rest of our life. As we seek to prepare people for eternity, as we've had a theme this year of investing for eternity and, and, and seeking to do that with our children, our young people, and ourselves, but in order to be ready for eternity, we need the righteousness of Christ. So last week, we began looking at the gospel, the power of it, the stewardship that we have of the truth, and, and the importance of, of really carefully discerning the truth, of, of accurately defining the truth of faithfully declaring the truth and, and boldly defending the truth. What I want us to consider this morning, though, is the heart of the gospel. 
We are looking at this 10th chapter of Romans. Romans is a theological masterpiece as a letter. It's the most systematic of all of Paul's epistles. The the theme of the book is actually found in the first chapter. In Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation, to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So while the general theme of Romans is the gospel, more specifically the focus is on the righteousness from God, which is revealed in that gospel and understood by faith from beginning to last, from first to last, from faith to faith. In fact, the the phrase, the righteousness from God, captures the very heart of this letter and is at the heart of the gospel. We're looking at Romans 10. We began last week with the first paragraph, the first four verses, which really Paul pours out his heart for his Jewish countrymen. He says, my burden and my prayer is that they would be saved. But he emphasizes he is praying for them. You know, when you love somebody, you will pray for them. If we're concerned about somebody's eternal destiny, we will pray for them. Our teachers pray for our students. I can't tell you how many times I'm out at Carline and talking with Mr. High, and he'll talk about students that he's praying for. That's the heart of our teachers. And understanding that was Paul's heart for his Jewish countrymen, and they had not treated him nicely. They had persecuted him, but he was burdened for their salvation. He knew they were lost. And what we considered last week is that you will only be right with God through receiving the finished work of Christ by faith alone. That was what was encapsulated in those first four verses. And we saw the gospel is advanced as Christians display a concern for others as they discern the true spiritual condition of others and clarify that personal righteousness is only in Christ. That first paragraph concluded with withdrawing the difference between doing something to merit acceptance by God and what was done by Christ. That it is complete. And so verse 4 here is really the culmination of that paragraph and actually sets the stage for what I want us to consider this morning in the next paragraph. Verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The next paragraph is actually an exposition of that verse. Verses 5 through 13 are explaining and describing and applying what takes place. And what I want us to see is that when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus, you will receive Christ's righteous life-changing confidence. So follow with me as I begin reading in verse 5. Romans 10, beginning in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness from faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. 
that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's look to the Lord. Father, as we look into your word, we pray that we would truly comprehend the gospel, not merely intellectually, but that there would be that heart trust. And if there's one with us or watching this morning that has not trusted Christ alone for their salvation, that your Holy Spirit would work, that they would understand that when they put their trust in him and receive his righteousness, it is a life-changing confidence that comes. So work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. In this passage, I want us to consider this morning that as we trust Christ, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you receive His righteousness. It's not just forgiveness of sin, but receiving His righteousness, and there is a life-changing confidence. That is the theme that I want us to see from these verses this morning. There's several things about that, though, that I want us to consider. The first one is that the righteousness of faith is not achieved through human effort. Paul has said, my my concern for my Jewish brethren is they are zealous but ignorant. And what we saw last week was that 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 ignorance was a culpable ignorance, that they were guilty because they were not applying the law properly. They did not realize that God's plan for salvation was in Christ alone. They rejected God's Son. In fact, Jesus Christ was the stumbling block. That's what chapter 9, verse 33 said. See, to to be Christ-like, to fulfill the mission of Tri-City Christian Academy, to seek to fulfill the desire here at Tri-City Baptist Church that we would be Christ-like, you first have to know Jesus Christ personally. It begins there. And some people today will acknowledge the Son, but they minimize His sacrifice. That, that his, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, that, that somehow he opens the door, but I have to work my way through it. No, it is done. Christ is the end of the law. And so Paul has laid that out in verse 4, but before pointing to Mount Calvary, he points the Jews back to Mount Sinai. He takes them back to their law. He says in verse 5, he says, For Moses writes, about the righteousness which is of the law. And I suspect that the Jewish listener, the Jewish reader at that point would have said, that's right, Paul, that's what we've been trying to tell you. We, we look to Moses, we look to the law, and, and, and we're following Moses, do and live. And that's actually a quote from Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments. If any man does, he shall live by them, I am the Lord. But there's a problem. If you fail to keep one point of the law, you're guilty of being a lawbreaker. You're guilty of all. You know, we want justice. We we hear that. That's often something you hear in the school. You know, that's not fair. We all have this desire for justice. It's, It's in the human heart. 
But you know, when, when justice is represented, Lady Justice is that visual representation of the moral force. And the, the statue of Lady Justice has several things that depict the key elements of justice. You notice the blindfold, the scales, the sword. The, the, the blindfold is to depict impartiality. The scales are equal for, for fairness, for balance, for that, that equality. And the sword speaks of authority and the right to carry out judgment, the vindication, the execution, even to the point of capital punishment. See, justice speaks of the principle of fairness and equality of being right or just. It's justice is conforming to that moral standard perfectly. Righteousness speaks of being just and, and upright, of meeting that right standard. So in a very basic sense, there is no grace in justice. Justice has to be complete. Retribution must be made for justice to prevail. And that's the heart of the problem. How can I be right with God? We talked last week. We, we want to think that God will grade on a curve. Well, if I'm better than other people, I should be okay. No, that's not justice. And so this is why we need to consider the heart of the gospel. Because the heart of the gospel speaks of the good news. There must be that right content. And I trust that we will see God's provision to deal with the heart of the problem. See, Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If a person is relying on the law to be right with God in order to be saved, then they have to fulfill the law perfectly to be righteous. You know, if you stand before a judge accused of stealing, you can't say, well, I didn't murder anybody, so you should let me go. No, you're a lawbreaker. And you're not innocent from the law. We spent a number of weeks looking at the Ten Commandments, which really give us a clear understanding of the moral law of God. And recognizing that, and we, we saw that they were summed up with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second half of them summed up with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, if, if every one of us loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly and loved our neighbors ourselves perfectly, we wouldn't have problems. But none of us do. And if you were with us, I think you realized as we went through that study that, that even when we think we've kept the commands, we struggle. Because our motives have to be right. Our attitude has to be light, right. To, we struggle with heart attitudes. To love God exclusively means we don't put anything else before Him. My interests, my desires, my goals. No, I want to glorify Him and love Him. To worship Him spiritually, that no carved or man-made images. How often do we hear or even think, well, I like to think of God as. And we make our own image of God. To esteem Him reverently. Not take His name in vain. Not take it in profanity or deceitfully or thoughtlessly or carelessly. And yet God's name is used carelessly all around us. To praise Him regularly. Remember the Sabbath, the only command that's not repeated in the New Testament church. 
But the principle of setting aside a day for worship, one day a week to, to reflect and for spiritual fellowship seems pretty clear in both the Old and New Testament. And I've said many times, one of the dangers of a Christian school is when people think it can replace the church. That when school is required and church is optional, you're setting your kids up for spiritual difficulties. You know, we, we can develop an academic zeal for the truth without a heart for Christ's church. And it's in the church that he's going to receive glory. James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. You know, keeping the law is hard. Recently, our grandkids stayed with us. I mentioned that last week. And they provided a wonderful time for social interaction and sermon illustrations. And one of the children had some difficulties in obeying in Sunday school. And I'm not going to name names to protect the guilty. But he was told that the disobedience <laughs> would be dealt with when he got home. And so before we ate, I went up to his room to, to talk with him. And uh, I asked him, what were you supposed to do? He said, I was supposed to obey. What did you do? I disobeyed. And his head was down, and then he looked up and he looked me in the eye and said, it's hard to obey. And I said, I know. We all struggle to obey. Even you? I wanted to say, especially me. I said, yes, even me. And that's why we need Jesus. Because we can't do it in ourselves. And it was a gospel opportunity as we looked at that, because keeping the law is not something that any of us can do in our own strength. Because the, the person who pursues salvation on the basis of fulfilling the law will be judged on that way, law. And obeying is hard. You know, sincerity, zeal, religious activity, baptism, church membership, even attending a Christian school will not cover the falling short of God's glory that we have all done. Failure to keep the law completely will result in eternal damnation. The second part of your life. Because we have to pay for that penalty if we don't accept Christ's penalty. And that lasts forever. Because the infinite holiness of God has been violated. Matthew 7, 23 says, And then I will declare to them, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So our works aren't going to save us. The second thing, though, I want to see is that righteousness is not achieved by prestigious achievement. It's not, okay, if I can just work hard enough and keep the law, well, then maybe if I do something really spectacular, if regular good works won't cut it, what if I do some great religious feat, some pilgrimage? What if I could ascend into heaven or descend into the abyss? Would that satisfy God's justice? And the answer is no. Actually, the incarnation and resurrection have already taken care of that. Jesus Christ came down from heaven. He came up from the tomb. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The righteousness of faith does not require some mystical spiritual experience or esoteric journey of faith. 
Zeal, even religious zeal, is not enough. Folks, do we understand that sincere religious people need Jesus too? Or do we only pray for those who are really messed up in sin? You know, the good people, well, they're okay. The, the people Paul is praying for would make tremendous leaders in the church. They, they already tithed. They did religious rituals. They were, they were sincere. They had a zeal, but it was an ignorant zeal because they were trying to do their own righteousness. See, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And too often, people on a spiritual journey don't want the Word of God. Verse 8 tells us the Word is near you. It's there. Faith comes by hearing the Word. But often people want an emotional high. They want the experience. They're not interested in knowing God's Word. Sometimes they're, they're interested in something that's spirited and they think it's spiritual. They, they confuse excitement for edification and assume if it's popular, it must have God's approval. A while back, we, we had a visitor here at, at Tri-City, and, and on their first Sunday, they, they were a guest with somebody, and they came to my doorway fellowship class, and we had just gotten into some doctrinal issues, and they disagreed with, with our doctrinal position. And they came up afterwards, and they were asking me several questions, and this was their first Sunday, and so I said, tell you what, let me give you some passages you need to go back and read. And I gave them several passages. I said, you need to go read these passages. Well, instead of reading Scripture, they went to their spiritual advisor. In fact, they even refused to read Scripture. Folks, faith comes by hearing God's Word. And it is the Word that is near you. That's what it says in verse 8. So the second main point I want us to see is that the righteousness of faith is only accessible through trusting the Lord Jesus. What does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the Word of faith which we preach. The preaching of the cross is to those who perish foolishness. There's a difference between attaining some kind of a legal righteousness and the righteousness of faith. And Paul is telling them instead of appealing to the law, they needed to call upon the Lord. That's the distinction that he's bringing out here that Galatians 3.24 says, therefore the law was our tutor. Some of our students need tutoring. They, the, the tutor is a teacher, and in that context, it was speaking of a guardian to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was there to protect, to bring to a faith in Christ alone. The sinner doesn't need to per perform some good spiritual works to be saved. He or she needs to trust Christ. And so what we see is saving faith involves personal commitment. Verse 9 actually follows the order of verse 8. It says that if we, you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's, that's following the order that's laid out in verse 8. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, which is actually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14. Verse 10 follows the chronological order of redemption. That heart belief and that outward confession. But notice what is confessed. Note what is mentioned here in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Literally, Jesus as Lord. The, the Lord, Lord is His title. 
Jesus his name. We, we would refer to President Biden. One is his title, one is his name. Governor Hobbs, title and name. Lord is used in verse 9, verse 12, twice in some translations. Lord, same Lord is Lord over all. And again in verse 13. This is repeated because it's an important point. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. But you know, the New Testament emphasizes Jesus is Lord. That was the announcement at the birth of Christ. In Luke 2, 11, there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In fact, in Acts, Jesus is referred to as Savior twice. He's referred to as Lord 109 times. Savior is used 25 times in the New Testament. Lord over 700 times. See, to receive Christ's righteousness, you have to accept His authority also. That He is Lord. He's the second person of the Godhead. He is God the Son. And, and we see that throughout the New Testament, that, that Jesus did the works of God. In Luke chapter 5, verse 17, and Pastor Nathan had shared some of this passage in, in our evening service on the life of Christ, but, but after that day, they bring this paralyzed man to Jesus, and, and they can't get into the house where Jesus is, so they open the roof and they drop him through the ceiling. And Jesus says to him, when he sees his faith, he says, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and Pharisees get upset. And they say, God is the only one who can forgive sins. And so Jesus heals the man physically to show that he has power to heal him spiritually. You know, that physical healing would provide satisfaction for that man in the first part of his life. But the forgiveness prepared him for the second part of his life, which he has been experiencing for almost 2,000 years. Jesus received worship as God. He possessed the attributes of God. He's called by the names of God. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. In John 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to kill him because they knew what he said. When he claimed, I claim to be the I am. See, surrender to Jesus as Lord is necessary for salvation. A sinner must repent of their sin and yield to Christ's authority. Now, let me clarify because I know sometimes we hear the term lordship salvation. I don't like that term. Too often obscures the need for sanctification, the process of sanctification, the need for spiritual growth, the struggle that we have in our daily walk. It, it's been caricatured to promote an almost immediate maturity or sinless perfection. And, and 1 John 1, 8 debunks that. But it's also wrong to think that a person could be saved without surrendering to Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean they completely understand. It doesn't mean that there aren't areas to grow but, or that they have a full concept of what it means to be holy. But they have to be born into a spiritual relationship and need to grow. You know, receiving the righteousness of faith comes by a heart of surrender. That the Word is near you and trusting Jesus Christ. It's the person and His work that is necessary. 
You know, suppose that you ended up in the hospital and I came to make a hospital visit and usually when I show up at a room in the hospital, if, if the door is closed or I, I'm not sure what's going on, I usually knock and try to announce myself. And, and suppose I came and I knocked on the door and I, I, I said, you know, I knock and you said, who's there? I said, well, it, it's Pastor Ken from Tri-City. And you said, well, well, Ken can come in, but the pastor stays out. <laughs> I'd probably wonder what medication you're on at that point. Because I, I'm coming in that position. Now, I, I realize the illustration breaks down because I can visit people in a non-pastoral role. But you'll never receive God's righteousness without confessing Jesus Christ as Lord Jesus. Without His authority, you don't get His righteousness. It must be personal. It must be a heart belief that, that the Lord Jesus has come. Who shall ever will call on the name of the Lord? It isn't enough to just know the facts. That's one of our great concerns with a Christian academy. We're teaching them Bible. They have Bible classes. We have, we have chapel. We, we, but are they applying it personally? We hope so. And I know that's what our, our staff is seeking to do. Because saving faith is a personal commitment and it also involves a public confession. Verse 9 is that personal invitation to believe. As it says, if you will confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That confession, that, and, and verse 10 tells how that's done. The, those who are delivered identify with their deliverer. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You know, water baptism is that public identification. Baptism doesn't wash away sin. But it's a public statement of that heart change. It's, I want to identify with him. It, it's fulfilling this. That there's been a change of life, that I belong to him. And the third thing is that saving faith entails the life-changing consequences. In verses 9 and 10, the righteousness and salvation are equated. Only a person who is righteous before God is truly saved. Righteous speaks of that eternal life that we don't deserve, the, the second part of our life. Salvation speaks of the rescue from the eternal punishment we do deserve. And they have to work together. The, the, difference, between being, is like the difference between being a good kid and a godly kid. We don't want to just focus on our kids' good kids. In fact, one of our dangers as teachers, as parents, as grandparents, is we, we can really pray for the kid who gets under our skin and has us pulling our hair out. They need to be saved. Yeah, so does the good kid that, that has a zeal. But do they really have knowledge? And there's a danger in seeking to raise happy kids and not seeking to raise holy kids. Do you pray for their salvation or just pray for the, the, the kid who has you, you know, at the end of your wits? And, 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 and you know, I don't want to put any names. <laughs> I may be related to some of them. But you know what? Those are the ones who will do something for the Lord. And they all need Jesus. In the same way that religious people who are going about all these good acts, Paul said, I pray that they will be saved. They're lost. Both the good kids and the, the difficult ones need Christ to be Christ-like. And we want them to love Jesus, to be like Jesus, to live for Jesus. Folks, that's what we have to do as adults. 
Because when you're saved, your motives are changed, your character is changed, and your relationships are changed. That's why a church family is so important that we come together and we, we work with one another and we pray for one another. And we've said many times we need to be slow to take offense and quick to forgive because we're going to live with one another forever for the second part of our life. And that goes on a really long time. So how are you doing at learning to love the person who annoys you, who wronged you? Do you love him as Christ loves you? Do you think we ever annoy him? Do you have trouble obeying? Yes. Do you think that annoys him? Well, he is patient and long-suffering. So shouldn't we do the same? Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving, even as God in Christ forgave us. The kindness he showed to his disciples who betrayed him. The third thing I want us to see is the righteousness of faith is evidenced through confident confession. Saving faith really brings a personal satisfaction. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. There is a personal satisfaction that comes that, that God's way of salvation is not difficult. It's not complicated. Those who believe will not be put to shame. Sometimes people say, well, that's too easy. It's by faith alone, in Christ alone. It's, again, the not put to shame is a quote from Isaiah 28, verse 16. It's also quoted up in, in Romans 9, verse 33. Those who have been delivered want to tell the good news. I am not ashamed of the, the gospel. It's the power of God. When you've been rescued, you want to share with others that good news. Because those who call on the name of the Lord will be delivered. And it doesn't matter who you are. There's no difference. Jews or Greeks, all can be justified by faith alone. There's no distinction. That's what verse 12 is telling us. This is, this is repeated over and over, that satisfaction and, and realizing that saving faith offers an un, unlimited deliverance. Verse 11, whoever believes. Verse, verse 12, there's no distinction. All who call. Verse 13, whoever calls. Now, what a blessing, whoever. You know, if it were our name written in there, there may be somebody else who has your name. You know, I, I think ending's a pretty unusual name, but once, you know, with the internet, I found there's a lot of endings. And I don't think we're related. There's another Ken ending. He's written sailing books. I've never read them. I've never met him. And if it was our name, might we say, well, I'm not sure he actually means me. We all fit in the whoever. Whoever will call. You know, too often evangelism focuses on the deliverance from sin and hell, but it ignores God's gracious provision of Jesus' righteousness. You know, if all Jesus did was pay the penalty for our sin and not provide his righteousness, we would be in trouble. That gets us back to where Adam was. And it didn't go well for him. And he was created in holiness with tremendous knowledge and goodness, and he failed. Do we really think that if we just got to start at that same point that we wouldn't fail? I mean, it'd be like a junior high student walking into their basic science class and being told that the test that day was on quantum physics. And if they missed one question, they'd flunk. I'd probably misspell my own name at that point. 
We don't just need Jesus' payment for the penalty. We need his righteousness. We need him to take that test for us. And he was tested in all points like you are, like I am, without sin. See, his, his sacrifice speaks of the penalty for sin. That's what salvation means, what we escape. The righteousness is what we become. And for the second part of our life, we need his righteousness. The payment, we escape the penalty. But we need his righteousness. See, heaven isn't just for people who hate pain. It's for those who love purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, if you don't desire to grow in holiness, to encourage others, to be edified by their fellowship, why would you want to spend eternity with people like that? Yes, Christians struggle. But as believers, we grieve over our sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So we need to see that. You know, our tendency is to, to look at the externals. Our children need the gospel because we need the gospel. So from what are we saved? You know, people want salvation without submission. There's no salvation unless we come in humble surrender and say, Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. God's a king, not a beggar, and it doesn't matter what our standing is in this world. Queen Victoria was the the queen of the United Kingdom and Ireland for 63 years. She served, she reigned from 1837 until her death in 1901. One day she was leaving St. Paul's Cathedral in London after a message, and she turned to one of the chaplains and she asked, can one be absolutely certain in this life of eternal safety. And sadly, the chaplain replied he did not know. Well, that conversation ended up being published. It was published in the court news, and a man named John Townsend read it, and he began praying for the queen, and then he wrote a letter to the queen. And when you see the picture of the queen, that writing a letter to her would not be a small thing to do. But here's what he wrote. To her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects, with trembling hands but heartfelt love, and because I know that we can be sure now of our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask you, your most gracious majesty, to read the following passages of Scripture. John 3, 16, Romans 10, 9 and 10. These passages prove that there is full assurance of salvation by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ for those who believe and accept his finished work. I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. Mr. Townsend also shared with others what he had done, and they began praying for the queen. About two weeks later, in a modest-looking envelope, he received the following letter. To John Townsend, your letter of recent date I received, and in reply I would state that I carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture that you referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you signed Victoria. 
You know, regardless of your situation in this world, your rank or position, you can only get into heaven with Jesus' righteousness. His blood paid the penalty for our sin. His righteousness is that clothing we need. And it's only available by faith alone in Christ alone. See, salvation comes to those who call on the name of the Lord. Don't spend an eternity, the second part of your life, paying the price for your rule-keeping religious zeal if you haven't trusted Christ. You may be satisfied, and every, you may satisfy everyone you know, but if you don't know the Lord, you don't have that hope. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when you have trusted Him, you not only receive His righteousness, but you have a life-changing confidence that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So have you trusted Him as your Savior? Let's look to the Lord in prayer.